Bibi Fahodier, welcome to the African Liberation Media Podcast. Media solely focused on the liberation and empowerment of African people. I'm your host, Gullah Jack, a.k.a. Russell Swilly. Let's get to it. Bibi Fahodier, this is African Liberation Media. I'm Gullah Jack, a.k.a. Russell Swilly. I'm here with brothers... Amos and Macaroo, I'll be very quick. Uh, COVID-19, I was thinking today, you know, I don't have to be tested in order to know that I'm sick. You know, Trump making a correlation between the number of cases escalating uh, and correlating that with the number of tests, but hospitalization is escalating. You know, I can easily determine whether or not I can breathe, whether or not I've lost my appetite, my smell. And though I'm not tested, I look at my lips and determine quickly that my lips are blue. And so I'm going to go to the hospital, you know, regardless as to whether I'm tested or not. You know, just a talking point, another talking point. I'm concerned with the academic level of African kids. I've done a Zoom, but when I encountered those kids, I came to the realization that they really were not grasping what I was saying. You know, not their fault, but that personal contact, you're able to ascertain and check for knowledge. You know, suffice it to say, many of our kids' parents can't afford tutors. So in the midst of this pandemic, you know, what's going on with our kids intellectually? What are we doing to compensate for the lack? Brianna's Law, in the wake of the tragedy, over in Kentucky, and of course, we want to talk about the shooting that took place on Beatty's Ford Road uh, in the wake of a Juneteenth celebration, approximately 12 o'clock midnight. Um, this is African Liberation Media. And over the past few years, we have tried to engage the public in the critical issues. Uh, without further ado, gentlemen, take it wherever you want to take it. Yeah, Bibi Fahodier, African family. Yes, we are we are coming to you after a a Juneteenth weekend that that had a lot of lot of positive things going on. Uh, Juneteenth, like Kwanzaa, is a celebration of the African family, African culture, and African community. But in a lot of uh, our communities given the continuing rage of the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, a lot of those uh, demonstrations had to be somewhat muted because there are guidelines that, that have to be maintained and responsible organizers would not want to be the source of a super spreading event where 15 people that attended your event wound up with COVID-19 and they trace it back, you know, to your particular event. So I've been working with brother Pap Njai, brother who came from Senegal, recognized that there was a void in the Charlotte community. He started a business called the House of Africa. He told people, if you can't go to Africa, we will bring Africa to you. And he's done a magnificent job of maintaining that business. 
and putting on this uh, festival now for 23 years. Usually the, it's one of the largest Juneteenth festivals in the entire country because we have vendors and entertainers that come from all over the country to Charlotte uh, to celebrate Juneteenth. Uh, we regard Juneteenth as a celebration of the end of the daily terror of chattel slavery. We don't fall for these definitions that have been posed, imposed upon us by our enemies or by people who don't uh, necessarily have the consciousness to discern or even have knowledge of the actual history of what happened. So you often hear terms about, oh, this represented our freedom. This is our Independence Day. And this is why you see a lot of black folks going out buying firecrackers and cherry bombs and rockets, rockets, red glare. I mean, why are you emulating the Europeans? Go, go, go buy some djembes, some bongos. Do something African. Don't just always run around imitating, as France Fanon said. <laughs> imitating your oppressors. We don't need to be shooting fireworks on on Juneteenth. That, that's ridiculous. But but anyway, uh, it was a positive weekend. But if you look across the country, it was a weekend where there was a lot of violence taking place. And in a lot of these cases, you know, like what happened here in Charlotte, we don't know who the perps are. And we know that uh, that our enemies have developed a level of sophistication to where a skin tone, melanin skin tone face mask with afros and walk among us. So, I mean, this is where they, this is where a lot of our enemies are. Uh, it was a particularly bloody weekend in Chicago with 14 killed 104 shot, including a three-year-old and a 13-year-old killed. Um, but here in Charlotte, we had a, a mass shooting uh, and violence that resulted, uh, injuries that resulted from the shooting, now reporting three deceased. Right in the heart of the black community, Betis Ford Road. I mean, I grew up off West Boulevard, but I claim Betis Ford Road because I graduated from West Charlotte Senior High School. So Betis Ford Road is mine. I probably probably put as many miles on my car driving up and down Betis Ford Road as anybody. Um, apparently, uh, I, I can tell you what happened from an eyewitness who happens to be very close to me, who I told not to go out, but they did. Uh, there was uh, several Juneteenth events. Uh, all of a sudden, it seemed like there was a commercialization of Juneteenth. Let me just backtrack before I get to that. It seemed like there was a commercialization of Juneteenth when Nike uh, declared that Juneteenth would be a paid holiday. Some NFL teams gave their players the day off or declared it to be a holiday. Some other corporations followed suit. Uh, we had just, uh, you know, I would call them obscene displays of symbolism. Some of the largest corporations in, in the United States are headquartered in Charlotte. And they 
they decorated the tops of their buildings in the colors of red, black, and green. Just utter blasphemy to uh, the name of Marcus Garvey and, and everyone else that has, has fought and died for those colors. Uh, and so, and so, so we had, we had all of that, all of that going on. And we had, we now have states, some other states saying that they are going to declare Juneteenth to be a, uh, a paid holiday. And all of that's good if you got a job in this COVID economy. And we really haven't begun to feel the impact because some people who have been able to uh, have been able to get through the um, the backlog, the jams, and and actually get signed up and are collecting unemployment are actually making more collecting unemployment than than they do on their regular jobs because the CARES Act uh, uh, allocated six hundred dollars per week for unemployed workers. Of course, now this is coming under extreme criticism by a lot of these uh, capitalists who are saying, well, they don't have an incentive to work. No, what it really says is that if you compare the average state um, income from unemployment, average state, let, let's, some states uh, pay like say $300 a week. And in some states, those payments only last for 24 weeks or, you know, 36 weeks or whatever, or not even that many, sometimes 12 weeks. And the government added $600 to that. And people say, oh, they're making too much money. No, what it really says is what a sad, what a sad state of affairs it is in your economy that people are not making a, a livable wage. That's what it really says. And so now we see the Trump administration talking about, well, uh, you know, if we get a new stimulus, we're not going we're not going to give them that much money. Yeah, right. I mean, because. You know, it's, it's, it's not that somebody can make nine hundred dollars a week on unemployment is they should be making nine hundred dollars a week on their regular jobs. But we haven't we haven't dealt with the impact of that yet. But in, in term in terms of in terms of, you know, so there was. There was, and and I would consider this to be a positive, you know, even though it's it may be superficial on a lot of levels. Beginning with the decision by uh, Donald J. Trump to announce that he was having a campaign, his first campaign rally in Tulsa on June the 19th, it created a tremendous uh, amount of outrage. And I, as Brother Almost pointed out in the conversation, a lot of this has to do with the power of social media. But I also say that the fact that people were able to connect, you know, because 10 years ago, I mean, how many people would have been able to make the connection between Juneteenth, say, and the, the killings of uh, Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and others? But people made the connection and they basically said, if you come down here, you come to Tulsa on June the 19th, it's going to be an absolute, you know, civil war. So he he decided to move his date, but it 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 it, it seemed like you know what happened was a lot of people started making the connection between the uh, killing, the, the 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 televised lynching of George Floyd, 
and the and and Juneteenth, even if they don't really understand all of the history and everything that that that's that's involved in it, they did connect it to our struggle. And so there were several events, and one of the events was organized by a group of people here in Charlotte. They had a Juneteenth parade on Batesford Road on Friday. Their parade ended, I think, about nine o'clock. Well, later on that evening, and and the community came out. They came out to watch the uh, cars ride by with red, black, and green flags, and you know George Floyd signs, and you know hopefully Wendy Gale Thompson and Carolyn Sue Bethinger and James Willie Cooper signs. I mean, all of the people that have been killed here in Charlotte by the police: Keith Lamont Scott, uh, Laquan Brown, Aaron Winchester, Janisha Fonville. A lot of them have been forgotten along Jonathan Farrell, but so the Juneteenth event was over and late on that night, a, a bunch of people came out to uh, shoot fireworks and they decided to uh, turn Batesville Road into uh, Z-Max Dragway or Talladega Super Speedway. So people were in the middle of the street while cars are trying to go down Batesville Road very heavily tra trafficked uh, travel street here in the heart of the black community and in, in, in on the west side of Charlotte. It was a very dangerous situation. And I was told by eyewitnesses that the police were posted up in front of the food line to make sure nobody threw a brick through the food line windows. Most of them are already boarded up with plywood. But they simply allowed this to take place on Friday night. So it continued on Saturday night. Now, on Saturday night, there was an event. There was an incident where someone pulled a gun. People started running and several people got trampled. But once again, people were attracted to people coming out shooting fireworks. And then you had the guys in all of these uh, supercars or hot rods or whatever you want to call them. I don't know what terms they're using now for these uh, challengers and chargers and Mustangs and Camaros and Corvettes and whatever else they can. They can manage to peel. We used to say peel rubber or burn rubber. Uh, all you're doing is wearing your tires out. And you're going to go right back to the white man and buy some more tires. But anyway, um, they were putting on this show Saturday night. Once again, on Saturday night, I have a picture of the police actually blocking off Batesville Road between Dr. Weber Avenue and LaSalle Street to allow these guys to do all of these uh, spin outs and burnouts and make donuts, uh, you know, and and if you ride up Batesville Road now, uh, particularly up there by Catherine Simmons, you'll see all of this burned rubber in the streets. Now, these guys are not professional drivers. And, you know, I, I, I told, you know, people that I knew were going there, look, this is a recipe for disaster. It would be very easy for one of these guys to lose control of their cars. You know, they're not Bubba Wallace. You know, they not, they can't do burnouts like John Force at Z Mag Dragway, Z Max Dragway. So they could I, I I just I had a very ominous feeling about it. And then lo and behold, on Sunday night, uh one of these uh hot rods hit uh ran into somebody, and when the uh uh the first responders, EMS pulled up, it sounded like Baghdad, Beirut, Tripoli, Libya, Libya during the uh, war on Libya, Somalia, Vietnam. There was an outburst of gunfire 
over 100 shots fired. And now we know that three people are dead. 12 others are injured. I think at least five of those people were hit by these uh, these dragsters who fled the scene and just ran over people. But the real, there are two things that came out of this that, that, were, that were just, you know, just absolutely uh, pathetic as far as I'm concerned. The first thing is that the, the Charlotte media and the police department tied the tragedy back to the Juneteenth event, which happened on Friday. And so, I mean, how, how, do, you, how do you make that connection? How do, you, how do you connect that dot? I mean, it, 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 was, like, it was like something that would come right out of the uh, propaganda playbook of uh, Joseph Goebbels to try to make that connect, to demonize, to try to demonize and vilify Juneteenth. But the real story is the negligence, the, the dereliction of duty, or even the malfeasance of the Charlotte Mecklenburg Police Department. Because you can't have it both ways. You can't stop me on Betis for a road for saying I got a broken taillight, but then you allow people to to engage in reckless driving, right? I mean, really and truly, I think the families of those people who were killed and those who were injured should 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 go to the ACLU, the in to the Legal Defense Fund. Somebody file a class action lawsuit against the Charlotte Mecklenburg Police Department because this didn't have to happen. These people did not have to be killed. Obviously, if, if somebody's going to put on that kind of show, it's going to draw a crowd, and then the word is going to spread. Now, just a, a week before that, when people were marching in downtown Charlotte, the Charlotte Mecklenburg police entrapped the protesters and unleashed a barrage of uh, rubber bullets and tear gas to clear the streets because they wanted them off the streets of Charlotte. You know, they call Charlotte Wall Street South. You know, we had a march uh, in 2012 when the Democratic Convention was here and it was called the March on Wall Street South. Charlotte is Wall Street South. So they wanted people off the streets of downtown Charlotte, but they allowed people to stay on the streets. Now. I'm not saying it wouldn't even be necessary to even, I mean, they shouldn't be using tear gas, but all they had to do was turn blue lights on. Just, and that would have stopped at least the, uh, the, the, the danger from the cars that, that, that wound up you know, running over several people as, as they tried to escape. I'm not saying it, it would have stopped the shooting, but it may have had they strategically placed themselves. And, you know, we got all kind of people defending the police. Talking about, well, why would they go out and do that? And they're going to get taunted. People are going to throw bricks at them. And what? Well, you know, these are the conditions you created. But at the same time, you got hired to do a job. So obviously, uh, you know, this is something that uh, that I think is very disturbing. But I think I think what the message I think the police are sending and we have one black police chief. Uh, this will be our third police black police chief in a row. The first one, one resigned. Okay, another one, uh, the current chief, Putney, is resigning effective July the 1st, and he's being replaced by another black chief. These guys are, are presiding over a department who, who 
guns down black people and who does not do their job in terms of protecting the black community. And so, but I think the message that's being sent and it's being sent all over the country, it's called the blue flu in Atlanta where the police are calling in sick because they're upset because two of their comrades have been charged in with the killing of uh, Rashad Brooks. I think this is the wave of the future. I think this is what we, this is what's coming to us, you know, in the black community, dereliction of duty, right? Uh, the black community has never had the right, had never experienced the human right of public safety anyway. Uh, the, 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 the murder, the murder uh, homicide clearance rate in this country is only about 60%. That means you don't even know who's committing 40% of the murders, and it could be anybody. And, uh, you know, you, you think about there were, there were 12 people shot, one killed in Minneapolis. There were nine people shot in Syracuse. Uh, it was a very bloody weekend. It appears to me that the police are pulling back. And so, you know, we really now need to make sure that, you know, give us the tax dollars let us hire some of these, uh, some guys that, that that will actually go out and protect our community, you know, have our own police force that's controlled by the police. Have, we'll use the, 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 the precinct on Batesford Road and, and, and hire people who actually care about the community because I think what's coming is that we're going to be in a situation where we got to got to fend for ourselves. I know it took a long time to explain all of that, brother, so <laughs> y'all go ahead and I'll be quiet for a while. <laughs> well, uh, you know, the, it's interesting, uh, brother, that uh, we're talking about the blue flu. And when you think about the police, I got these numbers yesterday, as a matter of fact. Numbers are somewhat staggering, and much of this money can be allocated for positive change. New York. $60 billion allocated to the police, which is the equivalent of the budget of Ukraine. Wow. Los Angeles, $1.7 which is equal to the budget in North Korea. Mm. Chicago, $1.7 which is comparable to the budget in Iraq. In Houston, Texas, $964 which equals the budget in Uganda on the continent. Filthy Delphia, $706 million equals the budget in Venezuela. You know, clearly we've discussed it here. Um, just the tactics of policing, trigger-happy policing. We talked about Ferguson. It is a moneymaker on top of the exorbitant uh, amounts that are allocated to these uh, police uh, units uh, throughout the country. Uh, you know, just another talking point. Yeah, Baba Makaru, I also agree with you and your assessment that Juneteenth has been somewhat now commercialized or accepted, widely accepted as a holiday by whites and a lot of these white corporations and i also feel that right now because of what is going on we have a lot of inexperienced people 
that are representing us on the front lines. And I think that sometimes that could be very dangerous, even though they may mean well. It's just like any other any other uh, profession or any other job. If you really don't have the experience or you haven't really spent the time to learn and understand these issues that we are facing as a as a race and then you put yourself out there and you overstep other people that have been studying and doing this for a while and this is not to say that new ideas can be brought to the table or that newer people can contribute but at oftentimes a lot of mistakes are often made when that happens and we have to be more diligent with each other and and be more respectful of some of the work that's already being done and it already exists out there. I mean, for example, you have a situation where someone is planning a Juneteenth event and there's already an organization that is pretty much put on Juneteenth events for the past 23 plus years. Um, so we just have to do better in our communication. And we also have to learn what's going on in the community or what exists in the community before we step out there and try to duplicate something that's already been done. Uh, whereas instead of duplicating it, we can just collaborate with each other and then see how we can assist instead of trying to do the same thing ourselves. So I think, I think that it's something that we definitely have to think about um, in regards to the police that have now, you know, going into their emotions and pretty much going on strike in certain areas. I think you're going to continue to see a lot of that, especially with people talking about trying to defund the police, trying to take the police out of various communities. You're going to see a lot of police start to pull away to try to make a point and show this is what things will look like if we are not policing your community. And they don't have a problem with sitting back and watching people destroy themselves so we have to take more responsibility within ourselves to control our behavior and to not put ourselves in positions where we can prove these police officers to be right and then also the men in the community have to start back um policing ourselves we have to start back calling out things that we see wrong we can no longer just sit back and and this is this is not directed at anybody because there are a lot of brothers out there who do already do this but just overall as, as a collective as black men we have to really hone in on our youth and we have to police ourselves so that we don't have to worry about police coming down into our communities or 
not coming in down into our communities um, with this resistance or protest that these police are trying to do in responding to what's happening around the country. You know, that's that's a very good point, uh, Brother Almost, and it really shows in a lot of ways how far, you know, the community has fallen even from, you know, the 1970s. You know, we we remember, for example, that our brother, Jamil Abdullah El Amin, who white power structure tried to kill in Maryland in 1970, he went underground. Now, a lot of people go underground, they're just trying to, you know, make sure they don't get caught. What did this brother do? This brother went to New York. He organized, he, he built an organization. They armed themselves. And they said, what's one of the major problems we got in our community right now? Well, one of the major problems was the Frank Lucases and Nicky Barnes of the world carrying on, you know, continuing uh, uh, from Bumpy Johnson and continuing, you know, even from, uh, you know, the Vito Genovese's and Carlo Gambino's of the world who had, you know, just flooded our community with heroin. He organized an anti-drug campaign and they confronted these people, not the little joker standing on the corner, but you know, the kingpin that they, they'd identify a, a super fly in the community and they would confront this guy and say, look, you have a choice. You got a choice. You either stop spreading this poison in our community or we're going to take you out. Now this is a brother that's underground. He's on the FBI's most wanted list. They want this man in jail. He ain't hiding. He ain't hiding. I mean, this is why I've always had so much respect for this brother. I mean, because what did he do? And the, the way they were able to capture him is because, you know, he had given this, uh, this particular uh, uh, outfit a warning and they, they ran to the police. And the police told him to keep dealing drugs. They were going to set up a hit so that when he came back, they were going to capture him. And that's how he wound up getting in a shootout, right? You know, and, and getting shot again. He had already been shot. They tried to kill him in Cambridge, Maryland in 1967. And then they tried to kill him in a car bombing in 1970. The car bombing wound up killing uh, the car he was supposed to be in, driven by two courageous brothers. One brother that... Uh, Ralph Featherstone was in SNCC. I'll never forget a story that Cleve Sellers told me. Uh, Cleve was uh, working at the headquarters in, the, in Atlanta at the time, and Ralph was one of the uh, field secretaries in the Mississippi Delta. And Ralph, Ralph called Cleve and said, uh, the, uh, the night Riders are coming by. You know, these were like, these were the Ku Klux Klan drive-by shooters. This was before black people even you know, first the, the first drive-by shooters were the, uh, you know, the Al Capones of the world. The Ku Klux Klan would ride by these houses and shoot into houses that they thought were either hosting civil rights workers or sympathetic to civil rights workers. It was a, a nightly routine in Ruleville, Mississippi, to ride by shooting in houses trying to kill Fannie Lou Hamer. 
This is real. This is real. I mean, this is why, man, I'm going to tell you what. All these people who think they're tough and bad today, they can't hold a candle to people like Fannie Lou Hamer because they ain't never faced the white supremacy dynamic the way those brothers and sisters in Mississippi and Alabama faced them. Never. A lot of these jokers would be urinating on themselves, and no matter how bad they think they are, if they had to fight, stand up against that. But anyway, so Ralph... Ralph called Cleve and said, uh, you know, they're they riding by the house shooting. So Cleve asked him, say, what are you doing? He said, I'm shooting back. <laughs> Every time they come back, we shoot back. He said, I think we ran them off. They Once they once they realized we will shoot back, they left. That's right. And, uh, and uh, you know, uh, Snick sent James Foreman to uh, Monroe, North Carolina, I think it was in 1960. And so uh, Robert and Mabel Williams opened their home. To James Foreman, brilliant brother, the making of black revolutionaries. Everybody should read that book. You don't read nothing else. If you want to know anything about the 1960s, read the making of black revolutionaries by brother James Foreman. So James Foreman, so he walks in uh, Robert and Mabel Williams house right down here in Monroe, North Carolina. He said he had never seen so many guns in his life. They had M1 carbines, shotguns, double barrels, you know, German Lugas, you name it. I mean, everything was within uh, uh, arm's reach. You could just reach here, grab one gun, reach there, grab another one. And, uh, you know, I'm just saying, I'm just saying that what I'm saying is that in terms of your point about policing the community, right, the Black Panther Party, the Black Liberation Army, they were like, okay, no, you're not doing that in our community. It ain't happening. It ain't happening. Mm -hmm. And so we don't have anything nowhere near comparable to that. We got a whole bunch of people with guns. They're mostly using them on each other. And when uh, when 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 the real power shows up, <laughs> what do they do? They do what Malcolm said. They get back in the alley. They mm -hmm. run. <laughs> so I mean that that's a point, but. But I'm telling you, man, it's a, it, 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 there's a desperate need to organize at that level right now. And we, and we got all these brothers that are military veterans. They they know how to use weapons. They've been in wars in Iraq, Afghanistan. The Vietnam veterans are getting a little bit older, but you know most of them are older. But these other guys have been they've been all over fighting for white people. <laughs> Come on, man. We can mm -hmm. defend our community. We just got to have the consciousness to do it and be willing to do it. Go ahead, brother. Well, when it comes down to, I'm paraphrasing, defending our community, Malcolm told us we don't have any blood. You know, how can you say you nonviolent, as violent as you were in Korea, as violent as you were in uh, Vietnam? But I want to digress and uh, recapitulate uh, what actually went on in Atlanta. And this is uh, from uh, what a brother Black articulated uh, so well. You know, uh, this is what preceded the blue flu. Shot a man in the back in Atlanta twice. Kicked him. You know, they did not adhere to policy. They tried to cuff this brother without telling him he was under arrest. 
you know, and he, we find ourselves in a situation where police officers are saying that they are career profiled. And it, it goes beyond uh, one bad apple. You know, it's the whole orchard. Supposedly, there's a book out, article of confession of a bastard cop. He said that the officers clapped and high-fived after killing and in an Atlanta office, officer yelled in the wake of the brother who was shot near Wendy's, I got him. So, you know, along with everything you gentlemen have said, the whole system needs to be looked at. Uh, we talked about qualified immunity that needs to be looked at in a place like Rikers Island. I'm looking at these numbers, reading them verbatim, 70% of Rikers prisoners are not convicted of anything. You know, the in, yes, sir. The whole, yeah, right. You, you, we can take off in, on that. Um, so this is what we're talking about. Just, And I'm going to switch gears right here. You, I'm talking about Fox News. This uh, guy, Tucker Carlson, is trying to equate the removal of Confederate statues with the statues of Martin Luther King trying to draw some type of equivalency. And um, <laughs> the point he's trying to make is, you know, why would we be outraged if a statues of King were taken down? We're talking about a man who's trying to expand the, the idea of the demos, talking about a redistribution of power, uh, question the legitimacy of war versus white supremacists like Robert E. Lee, who, you know, fought in a war where, you know, uh, this uh, semblance of democracy was at stake. No comparison. Brother, you're talking about Goebbels and his propaganda. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is, I'm sure he's probably applauding from his grave or rolling over because, you know, saying, my God, they've taken my you know, propaganda doctrine to a whole nother level beyond anything I ever conceived of. <laughs> yeah, speaking speaking on that, I just want to pass this on to uh, Brother Amos because he was the first person, he's, you know, he, first one of us to, you know, to bring this to our attention. The American Civil Liberties Union held enactment of a measure saying Colorado became one of the first states in the nation to strip police officers of a legal defense known as qualified immunity. ACLU called the Police Accountability Act as historic. So mm. out there in your former stomping grounds, uh uh Gullah Jack, they have Yeah, uh, go west, young man. That's what we were told. Yeah, they <laughs> out there they they have they have uh they have made they have made that move. But but you know one one of the things that uh you know that you know, we had these, we had our sayings, our, our vernacular. I'm sure that, 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 I don't know, I can't keep up with the new vernacular, but we used to always say, um, don't go for the okie doke. Don't go for the ghost. You know, don't, don't be a lollipop, all day sucker. Mm. And, 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 and what's, and, and what's happening, what's happening with, uh, you know, these uh, incremental reforms that are being proposed is they're in a mad scramble now to find 
a pacifier to calm, you know, people down, to get them back in line, to return things to the normal, the normal being what Dr. King called the absence of tension versus the presence of justice. And you you are beginning to see these Negroes, and Brother Reggie Singleton and I had this conversation today, and almost has been on this from day one. A lot of these neo-colonial accommodationists are our enemies, and we have mm. to view them in the same context as we view elements of the white supremacy dynamic. They will sell us out for less than what Judas got. Mm. And you and, and 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 you see this beginning to happen now, as this money is is going to be spread around. These these crumbs are going to be spread around. They won't. It's doubtful that they'll reach the organizations that are really doing things like the Mail's Place, for example. Uh, but th th this is what's going to happen, and then and then they're gonna tell people, okay, you know. Uh, Oh man, you know, we got 30, 30 million dollars for the West Boulevard uh corridor, the Betisboro Road corridor. I mean, you know, what we what we gonna do here, you know. So uh, you know, we 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 gonna we're gonna put some things in place. This is what this is this is the this is what's on the horizon because basically, you know, they you know, th this is the international embarrassment to you know the the United States is twisting the arms of African countries to try to get them to stop talking about the police brutality of their, uh, you know, long lost brothers and sisters, you know, here in the United States. So, you know, we, we got to get to a point where, you know, we say, look, we got to recognize these guys as, you know, we wouldn't hesitate to call out Joseph Mobutu and, and, and we don't, on this program, we don't do anything without documentation. We connect dots. We do serious research. We are African-centered, holistic, critical thinkers. But I'm just telling you that, you know, <laughs> the way Malcolm, you know, said, you know, these guys, you know, it wasn't a march on Washington. It was a farce on Washington. You can expect more of that coming. And all of it is, of course, is leading, trying to lead our people to the polls Mm. to be slaughtered by crime bill biden go ahead brothers yeah go I, ahead almost no i think that's exactly what it is i think that this is all this is more pacification you know it's this this um it's not the true direction that you want to take a liberation movement in and i know a lot of people are addicted to um trying to uh, humanize Europeans and educate them and make them look at African people as humans. But we have to really, we have to really critically think about the direction that this could potentially go in. If everything happens the way that whites want it to happen, they will still be in a position of power over African people. Come on. And that's the baseline. Come on, bro. The bottom line is power. My bad. No, go yes, ahead. Yes, sir. Uh, to, to your point, brother, <laughs> I'm segueing from 
what you both said. Um, <laughs> within the context of uh, the white supremacist thinking, you know, we have arrived because they're doing away with Aunt Jemima, the <laughs> subservient <laughs> black woman who loves to who be humiliated. Who they replace it with? Whoopi Goldberg? <laughs> Candace Owens. I don't know. <laughs> Candace Owens. <laughs> the brother who has sex with her should be arrested. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I think Quake Oaks is owned by what PepsiCo, and you got this Negro out there. I think he played linebacker for the uh, San Diego Chargers, Terry Crews, oh, the next Lord. straw man that dots the landscape. You know, synonymous with uh, Uncle Ben Carson and handkerchief head Clarence Thomas. You know, it's profitable. They, you know, in great demand. Like Brother Wilson used to say, many of them are funded by the crypto conservative organizations. This is Wilson talking. Mm -hmm. uh, he it, and, and I mean, he tries to make an equivalent. See, with uh, he says that we need to be careful that white supremacy is replaced by black supremacy. <laughs> you know, he so he uh, you know he. <laughs> This is the Despite, man that let a white. This, this is the man that let a white man reach up and grab his genitals right in front of his wife and didn't do anything. Pathetic. Yep. Because he was afraid yep. he would be he would be banned from Hollywood if he knocked this little uh, pervert out. The indignity <laughs> I mean, of yes. self delusion. But yeah, these cosmetic changes, cosmetic changes that really don't lead to liberation or you know organizations being funded that uh well the european is going to place stipulations on the funding yeah and it's a yeah. lot of like you said like you said about cosmetic changes it's a lot of symbolism one of the things that dr clark says we suffer from the most is we we want too much symbolism and we don't strive to get enough substance and mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. now with the the murals everywhere and you know the things being painted on the streets and the buildings being lit up by the white corporations in red black and green a lot of people feel more comfortable because they feel that the oppressor is accepting them we want to still be accepted by the system instead of being totally disgusted with the system in order to totally withdraw from the system and remove ourselves completely into creating our own system that we can run and control and have power over. Exactly. Goes back to exactly. Marcus Garvey you know, once I, I, again. Everybody's using yeah. the red, black, and green flag. All the corporations right. like Amazon are promoting this flag, but they have never, mm -hmm. and they never will promote Marcus Garvey because they know that if black people in this time right now knew who Marcus Garvey was and identified with Marcus Garvey's ideology, mm -hmm. if black people were able to succeed in obtaining what Marcus Garvey wanted us to obtain as a people, it would totally destroy the white power structure. So they, they would rather Absolutely. us assimilate into their society, be a little bit happier and feel, feel a little bit more accepted by giving us a paid holiday or by donating money to organizations that they already control like the NAACP, the Urban League, Black Lives Matter, 
and all the other mm-hmm. organizations that they quote unquote say are fighting racism when they would never give any of that money to any real organization that would totally destroy the racism and the institutions that they run every day. Exactly. And Barack Obama was afraid to even pardon Marcus Garvey. <laughs> I mean, you know, my love, you know, you know I, Trump, Trump would pardon Marcus Garvey symbolically before Obama would. But, you know, to your point, almost, you know, I, I had opportunity to, to speak this weekend to, uh, I don't know, maybe 100, 150 people that were uh, socially distanced at the uh, Juneteenth on Saturday. And of course, uh, I dropped it hot and heavy. And one of the things that, uh, one of the things that, that struck me was after I spoke, uh, a person got up and read a an announcement from uh, the uh, congresswoman that represents this area, Alma Adams, and she signed on as a co-sponsor. I want to say it may be the Sheila Jackson Lee's bill calling on the government to make Juneteenth a federal holiday. And it, it, it got a, a thunderous ovation when, when you know, the sister made the announcement. And I'm saying, what did we learn from the Martin Luther King holiday? What what did we learn? I mean, so if exactly. this were to happen, which I sort of doubt that it will that it will happen, but and it it it'd be good that, you know, like with Nike, it'd be it'd be good to have a paid holiday, provided you got a job. And like I said, I mean, you know, we got to we got to delve into the statistics because I'm telling you that the black community in the United States is in a depression. We just have not felt the full effects of it yet, but it's coming. Um, when they grant a holiday, they have several things in mind. First thing is, OK, let's just, you know, do what Lyndon Johnson said in 1957. Let's just give them. Let's give them enough to pacify them, but not enough to make a difference, right? Yes, uh, Lyndon Johnson, I guess, was even thinking ahead to neocolonialism before we even got there. Um, so, but the main thing they want to do, like they did with Dr. King, is control the narrative. That's they say, right. we'll give you Dr. King. We'll give you a Dr. King. And he'll be frozen on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in 1963 an integrationist, a dreamer, right? Little black boys and little white girls. And, you know, and, and I went from, you know, the heightening Alleghenies of Pennsylvania to the snow-capped Rockies of Pennsylvania, of uh, Colorado, and all of that came crashing to a, crashing to the earth when the 16th Street Baptist Church blew up about 15, 16 days later. But so they'll give you that, and then they'll control the narrative. And so what they, they'll give you a Juneteenth and you won't even recognize it. First That's of all, right. a lot of people don't recognize it anyway because we got too many people who think it's, oh, it represented freedom. No, it represented a transition out of, in my opinion, the most horrific form of oppression and exploitation any people have ever suffered, cattle slavery, right? 
uh, a transition out of the daily terror of chattel slavery. It represents a period of hope, but that, you know, after the Compromise of 1877, all of that was overturned. So what it means is that you engaged in a struggle to get rid of that system. They came up with another system. You engaged in struggle to get rid of that system. They come up with something else. When do you realize that you have to get back to what our people were under leaders like Narma and Sundiata Kieta, free, proud, productive, prosperous, and powerful people? Right. So don't go and for the okie doke. Go ahead, that, brother. And and by the time they finish controlling Juneteenth, it'll be ran by the transgenders and the homosexuals and the feminists, <laughs> and they will totally dominate the federal holiday and all of the expressions will be expressed in all of the corporate emails that you receive at your job. But to exactly. go back to your point, we got to basically get back to get back our resources. We have to control our resources. It's levels to the white power structure, but the ultimate level, the top level. So if you in a building and the building has 20 floors, and you only seen the first or the second floor, then you you don't have any idea of what's going on on the, on the top the top level, the twentieth floor. Well, the ultimate right. level of white of the white power structure has always been the attack on the African continent. This is the source yep. of their power and wealth. And when we begin exactly. to understand that, we can see why Marcus Garvey wanted us to not just go back to Africa to separate ourselves from Europeans, that was one of the reasons why, but the ultimate reason was so that we can rebuild our own wealth on the African continent and take back the wealth that they stole from us, not just from human resources, but from the natural resources that exist on the continent that they still exploit to this very day. Exactly. The entire world. To establish a power base, a power base. Right. The entire world is trying to control Africa. China is trying to control Africa. Russia is trying to control Africa. The, the, the tech businessmen in America like Mark Zuckerberg and, and the others who own Twitter and, and all these other corporations, they're trying to migrate to Africa, to control Africa. The British mm -hmm. have always tried to control Africa. The United States has over 50 bases, military bases on the African continent. Right. So, yeah, you can get a holiday here in the United States. You can get white people to march with you in the streets. You can get white people to probably even wear red, black, and green. But that's not going <laughs> to stop them from exploiting the African continent because at the end of the day, they will say that they are doing what's in the best interests of the American foreign interests Imp and national security. Empire. Exactly. That's exactly. what they will always say. And until you realize that you have to stop that, everything else beneath that will not get you to the level of having the power and the true sovereignty that you seek. Exactly. And, you know, and yeah. that's why we have to be in the position to assist, you know, as you were telling us the other week about, you know, some of the young, younger forces that are emerging on the continent and that, that are really beginning to to realize that colonialism was replaced by neo-colonialism and you got these corrupt leaders who want to stay in power for 30 40 50 60 years and all, all of they're doing is uh you know they are you know enriching themselves you know like uh joseph mobutu and and and, and many of the others uh 
just a couple of things. I know we're running out of time, but we do need to we do need to hit this, and I want to hit it hit it from this perspective uh, because I, I I do believe that 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 we're going to see an explosion of uh, of COVID nineteen in our community now. In younger people, it doesn't lead to as, as many hospitalizations and as many deaths. Uh, but younger people have the potential to spread it to older people. One of the things, uh, Gullah Jack, that uh, I saw recently, 30 football players at LSU, the national champs, have tested positive for COVID-19 and are quarantined. And I just want to ask you guys a couple of questions, you know, about that and one of the things, you know, one of the things that said to me is that almost all of these brothers, all these brothers that 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 have made the Southeastern Conference a powerhouse come from rural communities in Florida, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, some come from Texas, some come from South Carolina, North Carolina, go to these SEC schools and they made them powerhouses. But if 30 young people in this football program, 18, 19, 20, 21 years old, have you know come to a training camp and they found out they're positive, what does that say, number one, about the community they came from? And go to Jack, you've, you've, you've traveled extensively across the South. You, I mean, you know these, you know these communities, right? You're a football uh, high school coach in Florida. You know these communities. And the other thing is, and this goes, you know, not just for the NCAA, but it goes for the other sports. What is this particular football? I, I think, you know, mostly because of the close contact you have to have in football, heavy breathing and all that kind of stuff. Will these people try to force a season on these young college athletes and, and the, the paid athletes in the NFL? So there's two things I'm asking y'all. I'm asking y'all about what does it say about the communities where these these guys are coming from? You know, I mean, the, you know, the, the Monroe, Louisiana's and, you know, the Auburn, Alabama's and all of, all of these, Bell Glaze, Florida, these kinds of places. Yeah, you know, just briefly, you know, give me what your thoughts are on that. Immediately, brother, I think about a book that Megacy wrote years ago, Meat on the Hoof. Okay. Um, You're talking about Dave Dave Megacy? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Megacy. You played with the New York Giants? Yeah, that's right. Okay. Um, Okay. We'll talk about Megacy a little more. We think about Meat on the Hoof, uh, the fact that you are, in fact, uh, expendable. I think about the, uh, the book written by Bill Roden of Morgan State. Uh, defensive back, uh, $40 million slaves. Uh, I think about um, the, the number of athletes who are affected by this, and this is reflective of a larger society at the macro level where this thing, this disease hides between the breakages of the socioeconomic gap that exists between African-Americans and white Americans, uh, the gap that exists between, uh, and the breakages, the gap that exists between the race itself. You know, in football, in many ways, uh, 
you know, it's just a microcosm of the macrocosm in terms of, you know, how it's structured and how you are viewed. Uh, we can make all kinds of comparisons between uh, shadow slavery and, um, you know, what goes on when you are subjected to your physical exam, you know, uh, which is very similar to what brothers experience when they are being incarcerated and enter places like uh, Lucasville or Rayford or Parchman, you know, bent over, grab your ankles, lift your sack, cough. You know, it, it, so the similarities, we can draw all kinds of Venn diagrams between yeah, let, shallow slate. Let, let me just say one thing, you know, since when you said uh, the bullet Bob Hayes, you know, fam, you great Dallas Cowboy. He said that uh, when he went to prison, he said he knew that we, when he was dusted for lice, he had hit rock bottom. But go ahead with your point, brother. Yeah, so, oh my God. Yeah, he was incarcerated up at Huntsville. But uh, in the similarities and the disrespect, disregard for black well-being has been well documented. You know, if you're talking about um, brothers who participate in this gladiator sport, we've seen the disrespect um, in the wake of the Colin Kaepernick uh, protest, how, you know, your concerns as a man are, are not even secondary relative to you uh, being used as a tool that's depreciated. So we can draw all kinds of Venn diagrams between, you know, what happens with sports, what happens with blacks in larger society, and what happened during... Um, uh, shadow slavery, uh, which was, you know, replaced by another form of uh, slavery. Uh, suffice it to say, things don't change; they just simply become redesigned. So you know what? So so what you're saying is that they feel like they have a un, just like they felt during chattel slavery that they had an unlimited supply. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, of, absolutely. Of labor, of labor. Oh, oh yeah. Go ahead, almost. I mean, what do you what do you think? I mean, do you think you think they're gonna force a season on these guys? I mean, what do you think is gonna happen, brother? Yeah, I think that I think they're gonna try to because there's too much money at stake for them to lose if these guys don't play. So, I think that some guys may sit out, um, but I think that they're gonna try to they're gonna try to force the season. Um, to be able to make back a lot of the money that they lost. One of the things Let before, me before we close out, one of the things ahead, that bro. I wanted to, to say too is for people to keep your head on the swivel with everything that's going on is just something that's telling me that there's another Dylan Roof type of attack that's brewing somewhere out there amongst mm -hmm. us. So you got a lot of yep. white people out there protesting with black people right now. And mm -hmm. it's an easy way for somebody who is like a Dylan Roof to put themselves amongst the people and then just start shooting mm -hmm. people. So this yep. is the time when you definitely need to arm yourself and, all, and keep your security levels high. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, the thing I didn't mention, guys, we were talking about sports. The University of Florida has determined that they will no longer use the cheer if you're not a Gator, you're Gator bait. 
of course, we can delve into the history of that. Uh, you know, basically, we're talking about a time period in the Deep South um, where black infants will use this chum bait to be fed to gators in order to uh, catch the gators. But, you know, the same indifference that I tried to express regarding the welfare of back, black athletes is uh, comparable to the indifference that they showed toward uh, the black infants. So you can do away with the cheer, but you know, the substance of how you feel about, you know, African athletes in particular uh, being no more than meat on the hoof, well, then it still lingers. Exactly. And, you know, I, I know we get ready to close, but I just want to say one thing because I'm very concerned about uh, our elderly, you know, political prisoners. Uh, you know, our brother uh, Jalil Montequim was granted a um, a temporary release based on the, the ravages of the uh, coronavirus in prisons. I, I, I just want to read this right quick. Uh because while antibody rates for the general public estimate between 1 and 20% in most places, at Marion Correctional Institution in Ohio, nearly 80% of the prisoners have tested positive for the coronavirus. At Lompoc Federal Prison in Santa Barbara, California, the number is around 74%. At one dorm, uh, Ellen Hunt Correctional Facility in Louisiana, 192 out of 195 women tested positive. These prisons are a literal breeding ground for uh, the coronavirus, which becomes COVID-19 and becomes particularly deadly in elderly people. And a lot of our elderly prisoners are prisoners also uh, political prisoners been in jail since the 60s because they uh, fought the white supremacy dynamic fought for our liberation have comorbidities so I'm very concerned you know about the Mumia Abu-Jamal's and Jamil El-Amin Jaleel Mutaquim uh, you know Sundiata Akoli, Matula Shakur and, and, and all of the others, uh, Ed Poindexter, I mean, who are, you know, elderly, who are in prison, and it's amazing how, you know, the most of the white people who committed similar crimes uh, were released during this revolutionary era, except for one, David Gilbert is still in, uh, because David Gilbert just says, hey, I'm not apologizing for anything I did. He was working with Matula Shakur a white revolutionary, a rare, rare, rare thing in the United States. But I just think that's one thing that that uh, that, that, that we need to keep in the forefront of, of our minds because, you know, and of course, they just, they're allowing it to just, uh, hey, man, look, if they if it kills these prisoners, so what? They, they're glad. But, uh, you know, that, that that's my final comment, brother. Y'all, If y'all got anything else to say, go right ahead and then we can close out. Close us out, brother. Almost. Go ahead, bro. Strong, strong words and strong thoughts presented tonight. Uh, definitely appreciate both of you, brothers. This has been the African Liberation Media Podcast. Once again, you can visit our website, africaliberationmedia.com, for the latest podcast. 
And you can also subscribe to us and listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on Google Podcasts. And we're also now on iHeartRadio. And you can also visit our Facebook page and Instagram. Until next time, we'll be before ODA. Peace. Power or the lack of power. I want to repeat this. Power or the lack of power. If your education in this institution is not about gaining real power, not job, because your jobs do not represent power. Not getting elected, that does not represent power either. You are buying your houses and fine clothes does not represent power either. If it is not about real power, you are being miseducated and misled, and you will die educated and misled. If your study of black history is merely an exercise in feeling good about yourself, then you will die feeling good. The study of history then must be more than the pumping up of your self-esteem and the pumping up of your pride. Those things are important, but ultimately those things are not the means by which we will save ourselves as people in this world. 